He's here to remind you that you used to love horror movies, and secretly, you still do. Today, I'm here with author and hell-bent for horror podcast host, S.A. Bradley, and this is Slasher Sports Cinema. They say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding We all go a little mad sometimes. Oh, did no They're coming to get you, Barbara. Slasher Sports Show with Billy Graves. My dog's just gone fucking insane. It'll it'll calm down in a moment, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, have it any other way. <laughs> five o'clock is just one of those things around here. So doing yeah, well, though. Well, Thank you. Hope your holidays it, are going all right so far. Hey, likewise, likewise. It's been been good so far. You know. Um, I like to count the holidays as you know the beginning of october if, yeah same uh, here well september <laughs> yeah we like to call it spooky september right so yeah. uh it gives us a if we could come up with another name for you know august i don't know like maybe we could add some kind of nickname to august and extend it even further back I don't know, <laughs> the, the longer the spooky season can be the, the better right yeah just say you're a horror fan and it goes back as far as you wish it to uh, that's pretty much how I see it. Uh, I yeah, I, I do, do like a... to say October thirty second is when uh, Halloween starts. Okay, yeah, there you go. And it... <laughs> so that, yeah, it's good. Well, uh, thank you first of all uh, for uh, taking the time to come on with me. Oh, thanks um, so much for having There's a lot of things me. you could be doing on a Monday night, and here you are. So <laughs> I'm not that exciting. Oh no. Okay. Well, good. Me neither. So yeah. we're gonna. Monday Night Football, it's about all I can think of at this moment. But uh, even that, I'm not even sure who's playing today. You know what? I I don't know. Uh, My team played Sunday, and that's all I pay attention to. I've (laughs) I've tried to become more immersed over the years. Um, I just can't find any interest Ah, in in, in other teams. I don't don't know what it is. Um, I I, I love football. Mm Mm-hmm. I used to be super immersed. Uh, I was an NFC East guy, so I had a, a hatred for every other team outside of mine. Uh, but over who, the years, who is yours? Uh, well, it's now the Commanders. But I was. Uh, hey, you're a Commanders fan. Yep, yep. It's been a Me long. Too. Yeah, uh, long before they were Commanders, obviously. But uh, obviously. yeah, it's uh, it, it was always one of those things. I grew up in outside of Philadelphia, so being a Commanders fan was a big deal because you were going head first into Eagles country. And so, uh, you know, that, the Cowboys, a, a whole bunch of different teams, the Giants, they, they were big. So I knew a lot about all those teams. But quite honestly, if I'm to be completely honest about it, the, the NFL lost me for a little bit after the concussion stuff, you know, and uh, some of the things that went along with that. It was just such a, 
a disappointment. And of course, uh, I, I also come from Pennsylvania. There's a big disappointment that happened in college sports. It's a huge scandal, right? And sure. so those scandals kind of made me go, you know what? I, I better take a step back. And a uh, little bit, uh, the thing is, the love for the game never really disappears because all I have to do is like turn on the TV. I'm watching a game and I'm immersed. And before you know it, I'm, I'm calling offsides and stuff before it happens. And, you know, you're, I'm back into it. So the game itself is always fun. Uh, but I, uh, I lost uh, some of the form of the institution really bothered me. And that whole big business side of it. I mean, I knew a lot of the, obviously I didn't know them, but as a fan, I knew a lot of people who, off themselves over decades that they basically said it had nothing to do with it and so you know that's the stuff that anyway didn't mean to get all loud on that kind of thing it's a happy occasion we're talking horror (laughs) it it is but you know if we could draw parallels between football and horror it would be the last 25 seasons of washington redskins football would it not pretty much yeah pretty much that the only thing that gives me any joy is it hasn't been any better for dallas so, you know, oh, it sure hasn't. I mean, it, it, yeah, they, they've, I'm happy. You know, right now, though, the oh. NFC East is the, the hottest ticket Absolutely. in football. And and as much as I hate to admit it, the, the Eagles are the ones to beat. I mean, they're they're powerhouses. Well, and, don't worry, I'll edit that part out. It's <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, no, when we started Slasher right. Sports, my, my partner Christian and I decided, you know, that we weren't really going to cover football. Um, mm-hmm. at least not yet, you know, baseball is kind of both of our first love. So, mm. you know, we did that. Well, and... San Francisco giants or anything. So. Correct. So th- that's my, that is one of my questions. Like, where are you geographically? I've, I've heard Pennsylvania. I've heard San Francisco. You're in the Bay area now. Right? I am in the Bay area. Yeah. I live in uh, outside of Oakland. So I'm on the other side. Okay. Okay. So I guess we could draw even more parallels. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and for about four seasons, our AAA Nashville Sounds were the uh, AAA affiliate of the Oakland Athletics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Oakland Athletics. And, and even more parallels, the Oakland Athletics were the Philadelphia Athletics before they moved out here. So Connie Mack and all of that was uh, back in the day. Uh, and they still do the same damn thing that they did back in the early 1900s they sell off everybody they get the nice farm team people and they sell them off to the yankees so you know Tur- uh, turn them into all-stars and then offload yep it's uh, it's, it's funny that happened days. because the the day that they uh, that they announced the sounds and the athletics were going to be affiliates um it, it it was probably two weeks before that famed uh, wild card game where Sean Doolittle blew the game, you know, wide open against the Royals, and of course mm-hmm. the Royals would go on to win the the, the World Series all the way. But yeah. that was my introduction to Oakland because I did not pay attention to any West Coast, much less any uh, American League baseball, because I was right. following the uh, the Brewers at that point. And of course, we're back with the Brewers right now. But yeah, wild conversation. Did not expect to be talking Commanders football first of all. in in this call but that's good i'm Um, just glad i I remembered the name in time (laughs) listen i'm not going to edit anything i i'm i have it on high authority the name was appreciated it was revered and now not so much whatever fine i'll call them the commanders but i'm still saying hail to the redskins and that's Mm. what i'm going to do forever (laughs) but um 
today, uh, I mean, we've uh, we've got a good a good conversation set up here, okay. and I didn't actually previously uh, know you until we met on uh, a, a site where we kind of match each other up for for podcast guesting and hosting. Um, so I, I looked into your work and I was like, okay, yeah, Hellbent for Horror. Th- this could be a, a daily listen for me. Oh. And it has been. I've enjoyed your your podcast quite a bit. So, in a nutshell, tell me about Hellbent for Horror. Uh, well, Hellbent for Horror is a, a podcast where I talk about all things horror. It can be movies, it can be books, it can be music, uh, it can be what's happening in pop culture. Uh, and I talk about how horror affects our culture and how culture affects our horror. And I talk about things that affected me. And so uh, there are interview shows, of course, but uh, what I really love to do, and I haven't done it enough recently, is essays. I like to take four or five different movies and come up with one theme and just kind of play with that. Uh, And that's always a lot of fun for me. And uh, I get a a lot of people who are vocal about what they like about the show. So that's always nice. It's It's a small group of people, but they are very passionate. Well, sure. I mean, uh, a lot of times the loudest voices, you know, come in the smallest sections of the crowd. But when you say that you're looking for like an overarching theme, are you talking about maybe social issues or just common ground uh, among those films? It can be both, but I tend to like going down some of the social issues. So uh, early on, uh, there were things like uh, one of uh, my favorite things was uh, folk horror. Now folk horror is kind of broken out, which is movies that were more about nature uh, as the beast or uh, kind of the idea of how uh, the old religions used to think of things and if that was real. And so I, I had a, a show about that. And then I had one about uh, going up through the satanic panic. So a bunch of things about heavy metal. Uh, I think I had two shows about that. Uh, and then there are ones that I just like I had bat shit horror, which is basically me just talking about how there are some movies that are their own genre and they don't define themselves in any strange way. They're just batshit crazy. And so uh, movies like uh, I guess Mandy is one, but then movies like Rubber, which is a killer tire that's rolling around <laughs> blowing people's heads off. You know, so movies uh, I, I go in both directions, but there are times when. What I like about horror, what I think is great about horror, is it can certainly just be uh, you enjoying the monsters and, and the mayhem that's there. But the monsters are always metaphors. Whether you sure. want to look at it or not, it's your choice. But they are there. There's a reason that you decide to have the movie be uh, where it's a nuclear monster versus an, uh, a monster that's environmental. Depends on what people are afraid of at the time. You tend to see movies will always be talking about whatever our anxieties are. And so uh, I sometimes find that I like to enjoy movies like that. I like the ones that have the subtext underneath the text. So it's not hitting you over the head with it, but it is always there. Uh, And so I find that I try to do that with uh, some of my podcasts as well. So there will be there was one that I I talked about what was uh, kind of considered fascism. Uh, at the time, things that were happening on our uh, uh, on our uh, historical moment, but I was talking at, about it through movies that show just what authoritarianism is really about. You know, the idea of like uh, the movie The Tenant, uh, Roman Polanski's The Tenant. Now, there's no fascists running around in that movie, but it's all about a guy who's Jewish who's sitting in a hotel in Paris. 
and everybody's watching him and everybody hates him and they're stealing his shit and uh he is to blame until they drive him crazy and uh then i'll have shows that uh, are about you know uh people who think that they're doing well for the world and they're really causing more horror and pain and so uh, i i talked about a a movie called Roar, which was supposed to be this happy little pseudo documentary uh, where they had live tigers and everything living. It was like the, the, that whole weird hippie idea that you could commune with nature. And at one point, uh, Tippi Hedren and her husband had this place in like California in the valley <laughs> around LA with, uh, I forget how many, 30 lions and, and panthers and all. these animals that should not be together. He had them all together. And so the movie, they're getting torn up. Uh, and it's like a horror movie. It is a horror movie. The only people who watch it now are horror fans because it was such a wrong-headed thing. Uh, but it's them thinking that they're doing something great, right? And uh, there was another one. I, I, I put that, paired that with a documentary called Tickled, which uh, showed how it's so easy to abuse people once... Uh, there's a certain level of liberation given. So this was about fetish and it was about a tickling fetish, but it showed how if someone was diabolical enough, they could blackmail someone completely, even if everything was considered above the board and kosher. So it was really interesting how the way that the person was exploiting everybody was that if you tried to go after him, he was able to say that you were kink shaming. So it was really uh, the guy's doing the wrong thing and he's protected because in a way we're trying to liberate people and get rid of the, the stigmas. Uh, and, and then you have the scum buckets that'll float in underneath that. So in that way, I'm I, I like to talk about those things, but it's really talking about the movies. And so there are times when it's just about buckets of blood and it's just about you want to see uh, my five favorite super low budget movies that were made at the price that you would cost it would cost for a used car i've got that on a, on a podcast as well so uh, i love all sides of horror i love all aspects of horror i'm a big movie geek uh but my heart belongs to the horror movie because i think it's the most beautiful of all the genres it is made for allegory and metaphor it tells you exactly when you're full of shit. uh it will tell you <laughs> in the way that the movie comes through well, it's funny you say that because it's exactly the point that I made on one of my previous podcasts when we were talking about the film Cujo on its uh, anniversary of release. Uh, one of my, you know, my teammates at Slasher Sports came on. We talked about how, yeah, this could possibly be an allegory, um, meaning that maybe D. Wallace is having to face her own cheating in the form of a giant St. Bernard who wants to rip her face off. Right. And she can't move on with her life until she deals with this animal outside her vehicle. And of mm. course, you know, we had a caller uh, chime in and say that, yeah, Cujo is an allegory, but um, it's possibly for, uh, you know, man wanting to control animals. And mm. he brought up uh, the, he brought up the film man's best friend. Uh, which right. was a, a Lance Hendrickson film. Yep. Um, uh, Ali Sheedy, I think, was uh, the, the female lead in that one. I think you're right. F fantastic flick for its time. Um, I, I think it, at the time, it was probably one of the hottest horrors in theaters. But we've also covered uh, the people under the stairs and those socioeconomic uh, sure. you know, issues. Um, very good job 
in that film, putting together a cast that, you know, could, I guess, convey those feelings. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about They Live, a classic Carpenter flick with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, Actually was able to, I always love it when I can introduce someone to a film that Mm -hmm. I love. If it's their first time viewing it and the the first time they view it is because they're going to come on and talk about it. It's music to my ears. But yeah, the the, the horror film is full of allegories, but you can take it at face value and not lose an inch. Right. That's the beauty. And that's the beauty of it. And I I love uh, that's what we do this for. Right. I mean, I'm in the middle of uh, writing another book and it's it's a lot about why we we love horror and also what I think uh, makes uh, makes horror worth our time and some of the things that I think uh, need to change in it. Uh, but in that, I talk about how horror fans are a little bit different than some other, excuse me, some other fans. Uh, we tend to not feel like we're doing what we need to do until we somehow uh, get someone else involved and we need to spread the disease. So, uh, the, the idea, <laughs> the idea is we're not hoarders, uh, hoarding information, hoarding how much we love this thing, hoarding the treasures, keeping good movies to ourselves. It's not what we do. You know, uh, no. the, the people that I basically connect to are the people who can't just watch movies. They're compelled to create in some fashion. Sometimes it's a podcast like this. Sometimes you're making your own movie. Sometimes you're a t-shirt creator. Uh, sometimes you're doing Mondo posters, right? You're doing re- redos of interesting old-fashioned posters. Whatever it is, uh, we're compelled by our, our love for this and our fandom to do more than just watch. And part of that, uh, I think a big part of that is we need to connect with each other and we need to kind of have uh, spread, like I said, that disease to each other. We need to, it's only fun if you give it to someone else to share. Because the thing about a horror movie is it can only really scare you once. The first time you see it is the only time it can really shock and surprise you. After that, it's a thrill. So how do we recreate that thing of which we so love? We give it to someone else and we wait for them to jump out of their skin. We want to hear the what the fuck. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, can we swear on here? I, I I think I may have sworn already. What kind of I'll, fucking question is that? Yeah. Try to make sure. You know, I've had that happen where uh, I didn't ask and uh, nobody says anything, but then the chat starts to go <laughs> go up. So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's nothing until it's... Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that it's a rare art, right? It's like a chef. A chef can spend his entire life learning how to take food and turn it into a poem. But it's a useless poem until someone eats it. And then once it's eaten, it's gone, right? So you are not creating anything worthy of being called art until there's a viewer. And so rock music or any kind of music is the same thing. You can sit at home and listen to the song, but it's not the same as going out there and having that moment where you see the person who's actually done the song and you're surrounded by people who also love that song and you sing along. Now, these are things that uh, allow us to have this alchemical moment. And I think that horror, uh, you need to share it with people. It's who wants to just be scared alone? That's not what it's about. I mean, I, I watch a lot of movies alone, but I think the thing is that we want to share this, uh, humanness this vulnerability that we've got you know uh, there's very few things as intimate as eating right uh sitting down and eating with somebody uh, and there's few things as uh, vulnerable as letting people know how scared you can get 
And so mm. I think that there's something very human about that and something that I think is enjoyable. Uh, it's funny that you bring up Bay Live. I'll shut up after that. But uh, uh, please don't. Allegories. Please don't shut up. <laughs> talking about allegories. I've been talking about uh, Bay Live a lot recently because I'm an old guy. I, I, I saw it when it was in the theaters. And so I know exactly what the allegory was. I know exactly what the metaphor was that he was going for. It was on the news in every day. So it was uh, the Reagan uh, GOP at that time. You know, it was the right. Sure. And it was uh, this idea of how they were creating these yuppies, basically taking people who were uh, at one point somewhat left-leaning and buying them out with money and turn them into these, these things that were consumers that just let this little thing keep going. So that was the whole uh, thing. It was very satirical. It wasn't like you were sitting there going, ah, but you, you got the satire and it was fantastic. It was funny and it was brilliant in its way. But 20 years later, uh, it's flipped, right? Now, whoever's in charge is what the allegory is. So I know a lot of people who sit there and say, no, it's Pelosi, it's, it's those folks interesting but what's no no harm no foul in that it's great to always talk to the emperor's new clothes but the thing that becomes sure. terrible about the allegory is context when context is lost where do we go so why i bring that up is about 10 years ago maybe less the white supremacists got a hold of they live and they started using they sleep we live uh, they live we sleep uh, as their little sayings, uh, they would show the sunglasses coming off. And it was all about the Jewish uh, conspiracy and the bank conspiracy. And they right. said that there was no more white supremacist film in the world than they live. And John Carpenter had to come out and say, you guys are fucking Yeah, he idiots. took exception. Yeah, he took great exception to that. So that's one of the interesting things is great as uh allegory is and metaphor is and we want to not have the smell of burning tires by being too on the nose with what we're talking about it is something that we have to have as a cautionary tale as we spin further and further away from research we spin more away from their understanding the contextual thing of what's going on uh it's very easy for this stuff to be manipulated this is why you're seeing so many uh rock musicians and uh, country musicians coming out and saying, you can't use my song for this because that's not what it was here for. And you're just appropriating it in, in your own fashion. You're taking what it means. And uh, I mean, back when I was a kid, it was born in the USA by uh, Reagan, right? Yeah. Right. So Reagan took that. Uh, it which, didn't Trump take, what was the song Trump took? I can't remember now. I, I, who knows? And somebody took exception to it. I can't remember. Yeah, exactly there were a few people. Uh, I know that we're not going to take it. D. Snyder came out. D. Said, Snyder, that's that's exactly the one. Yeah, God bless D. Snyder. I, I love that he came out and said that because that is interesting because you always, like, we're horror people, right? I go, I have a thing on Twitter because I have a thing on Twitter. That's where I get so much business because it just flies by and I get so many fans. It just kind of fall into this stuff somebody retweets and it goes all over the place uh, but i don't read what people say because i'm i'm of the belief that uh, horror is universal it's for everybody there's a horror movie out there for you you don't have to love them all but there's something that's going to specifically speak to you but that also means it's for everybody and it's universal so i know that there are people who uh i will not agree with in many many ways uh if i get deep down into their stuff 
so I don't get beat down into stuff. I believe that uh, you have the right to my horror stuff. But if, on the other hand, you start using Hellbent for horror, and all of a sudden Hellbent for horror, instead of the O's, there's a swastika there, I am going to come after your ass. Yeah, and, and, and that's yes. it. Because, uh, I'm a uh, I'm an old Air Force uh, veteran, and you don't want to you don't want to play Nazi around me. Facts of the matter: I'm a former Navy guy, so uh, all right, yeah, all right, who who were on that? But you know what? It is a good time for horror film in general oh. right now. I mean, like you know, no matter what the online forums are saying, yes. You you look at Facebook groups, and it seems like ninety percent of the posts are about a film they didn't like, right? I talk. I'm talking about that in the book too, which is that we ha we are don't unify. Uh, that uh, we we all agree that it's the most beautiful of all the genres, but that's where our agreement stops. And so I'm kind of deconstructing that because I want people to realize that horror is not owned by anybody. Horror is the punk rock of cinema. Yeah, and it is DIY. Everybody can make a movie if they so want to. The level isn't so ridiculously unattainable. Uh, it is universal. It's where people cut their teeth uh, before they go on to other cinema. But we do have a fucking problem with this thing of thinking that there's either gatekeepers, or there's ownership, or that somehow it's being misused now by certain groups. I get that. Uh, but I have to tell you, it's always been <laughs> misused by certain groups and it's always been used by groups that were trying to push change. I think the, the thing about horror is that it is always poking at the sore spot that everybody wants to ignore. It is always knocking on that door because it's an exploitation film and there's nothing wrong with exploitation. Exploitation exploits an emotion. And so what we have with horror is that uh, if you look at any decade, I like to say, if you want to look at it, uh, find out what anybody was pissed off about politically or socially, go to their horror films of that decade, even back to the silent films. You can see movies that uh, it's all about, you know, white slavery, which didn't fucking exist, but everybody believed it did. You know, a young white girl's going to go to the urban world of the urban jungle of this of New York City. They're going to get taken. And uh, there were movies for almost a decade that were big hits because of that, you know, that fear. And if you take a look, you can see where the fear is. And then you can even see where the fear kind of changes and goes away for a while. In the 40s, you know, the guys behind me, if anybody who's uh, just listening, I have the old universal monsters behind me, the werewolf, the mummy, Frankenstein, and Dracula. And those guys ruled the roost in the 30s. But once World War II stops, starts, these guys disappear. And if they yeah. are around, they're used for comedy because they had a big bad that was out there in Europe that was much more uh, realistic than anything that these guys could do. So for uh, a good 10 years, uh, horror actually turned into a bit of comedy. There were more noir films than there were horror films. And it was more of this darkness that was coming in. In the 50s, once we decide to drop bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we have to, we split the atom. Once that happens, we go back to horror real quick. We have giant ants, giant tarantulas, giant scorpions, all that shit coming out of our, our, our thing of uh, nature getting out. Godzilla of himself. Oh, yeah. I love talking about Godzilla because Godzilla, Godzilla and them put those two movies together. And uh, you can see how two different cultures took the same event and what they got out of it. And one, uh, I mean, uh, there was a healing thing, weirdly enough, Godzilla. We looked at it as kind of like a knockoff of King Kong. You know, it was just another giant monster. But sure. to the Japanese, 
that was like a, they, uh, people forget that they were censored. They couldn't even talk about the bomb because MacArthur was there, the army was there, uh, and uh, you could not speak publicly. You certainly could not speak artistically about what had happened in the war. And there was also great shame of what happened in the war. So it took a guy in a rubber dinosaur suit smashing Tokyo. Everybody knew exactly what they were talking about. I mean, he's brought to life by the nuclear bomb tests that are happening in the Bikini Islands. It's basically the beginning of the movie. So when that movie was there in 1954, I think, uh, people were dragged out of the audience, out of the theaters, crying. You know, it was an emotional catharsis. They finally got to have something talking about this bit. And I think we all get to that point. Yeah, there's always a movie that just, boom, takes off. And it takes off because it hits the zeitgeist. Nobody knows what the zeitgeist is going to be. Nobody plans that. Just somebody all of a sudden does it. And it's kind of like, uh, that's where it's very punk rock as well. You know, uh, Henry Rollins said, how did punk rock happen? One guy said, fuck you, you can't tell me what to do. And somebody else went, I've always thought that voice of a generation, I'm following you. And before you know it, you've got a trend. Everybody's just simmering, waiting. And then one fucking crazy person jumps over the fence. And once that happens, uh, it, it becomes a movement. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think um, uh, horror is always talking about that shit. <laughs> you know, I wondered what the Japanese might feel about the American appropriation of Godzilla. Oh, um, yeah. At times, you know, because like I, we're almost using their tragedy. Yeah. You, you kind of feel like, uh, like what if the Japanese made a 9-11 flick, right? Right. That's such a great point, because I usually say, think about us making a 9-11 monster movie within a decade of 9-11 happening. You know, yeah. Like, people would people forget insane. that Godzilla was a mere 10 years after the yeah. bombs were dropped. Exactly. Not even. So it's like uh, it's it's astonishing to me that uh, they had the the crazy courage to do that, and I think immediately uh, the Japanese were pissed off about it because when they Americanized it, they changed the end, and they put in Raymond Burr. That whole oh, thing. Perry Mason himself. <laughs> yeah, Perry Mason's in the movie, and he wasn't in there in the Japanese one. So the Japanese version, Gohira, is really bleak. It's still, I mean. You know, nothing looks super real, but think about the galvanizing effect. I mean, Godzilla doesn't attack L.A., doesn't attack New York, doesn't attack San Francisco. He goes after Tokyo. So it is a reckoning, right? You're getting it right in the teeth, you know, the, the craziness of it. So I, I, uh, I think highly of that. And you're right. I don't know what they think. I think the money probably helped. I think just the idea of being able to be... Um, part of the conversation for a while but i guarantee you that uh godzilla uh, the ownership of godzilla is still toho you know that area uh, sure. the, the japanese want that and they make that theirs they won't allow it to be thoroughly uh, americanized but uh i think it's been americanized uh i think we see godzilla as a different beast though uh, i think it's a different allegory or metaphor for us than it is for the japanese and I'm glad that almost 60, 70 years later, uh, that is still a, a, a viable monster. I always liked Godzilla more than I did King Kong. I mean, King Kong's tragic, but Godzilla was angry. And I was an angry Another kid. great allegory, by the way. Oh, King Kong, yeah. 
I mean, Absolutely. it's not an allegory we want to look at, right? No, but but, uh, but it does. It shines a light, you know? Oh, yeah. And like growing up, did I know it was an allegory? Absolutely not. No. Now that I know, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, right. it's hard to not think about it when uh, it's, there's a, the, the scene in uh, Inglorious Bastards uh, in, in the tavern when they're playing the headbands game, basically. And, you know, the, the guy, he draws uh, King Kong. Right. And, you know, he wants to know, was he from, um, is he from a, a foreign land? Uh, yes. Uh, was he brought over by force? Yes. W was he brought in yep. chains? Yes. Yeah. Uh, did they bring him on a boat? Yes. Did they display him for other people? Yes. Oh, yep. then I must have been the, uh, the American Negro. No. Oh, then it was King Kong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's brilliant writing by, by uh, Tarantino to yeah. do that in such a, cocksure hilarious way that really drives it home in a satirical fashion whereas if you had somebody you know saying that straight out people would be like oh that's heavy-handed but it's so smart i mean he does that uh, i have to give tarantino credit i love the whole thing of foot massages that was in pulp fiction you know the idea that we uh we like to pretend that there's an innocence in seduction and uh, that things can just be an innocent deal. And he says, Do you, would your mom, you want a foot rub from your mom? You know, can I get a foot rub from your mom? It's just freaking <laughs> hilarious. It's so smart and so clever. Uh, and I just read his book, uh, Cinema Speculation, which I... I've not read that. And like, I, I do have a fascination with, you know, his ability to recall uh, certain things from film and like you can really tell that he's not just a poser you know, he is oh, no. a true uh, lover of cinema and it's yeah. not just exploitation it's not just a certain genre uh, like myself uh, but he can talk cinema all day long and really never gets tired of it yeah and i love doing this one of the things that uh, i i do with my show and what i did with my book uh, as I, if I believe that horror is just as good, if not better than any of the genres, I cannot pretend that the other genres don't exist. So in my, in my, uh, chapters and in my podcast, I'll talk about movies that are not horror. I'll talk about how, uh, Rocky made people feel, uh, when I want to talk about, uh, Jaws versus, uh, the thing. So I had this one that was called, uh, religious and sacrilegious moments in, in film and how somehow, Jaws got a pass because Jaws really does just kind of, it, it is gory as hell for the time that it was made. And it was for, uh, it was a PG rated film and all that. But that end uh, is something that is very akin to Rocky. And so I talk about how Rocky uh, came out at a time when all of the movies were like bummers. By the time Rocky comes out, everybody loses and everybody dies in every film down to like action films, uh, action films where it's just good old boys getting away like Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry. And all of a sudden they're like, nobody's going to get us, uh, stop us now. And the car gets hit by a freight train and explodes and everybody's killed. And that's the end, the end, the credits come up. And everybody's like, what the fuck? We can't even have fun with like a Smokey and the Bandit shit. And so uh, <laughs> the Bandit didn't even exist then. But it was like that. It was like if Smokey and the Bandit ended with Burt Reynolds exploding into flames. <laughs> That's what Dirty Mary Crazy Larry was like. And so you had these kind of movies. So uh, Rocky is a completely different thing. No, everybody expected him to lose. Everybody's waiting for him to die. Everybody's waiting for some terrible thing to happen. And then he knocks down Apollo Creed and the entire audience of 40 something men 
boom, goes up. So early I, in the fight, too. Yeah, early in the fight, first round, right? And yep. then you're like, holy shit, what's going to happen? So you're like completely, yeah, it's just so great how that movie builds. So am I going to pretend that that movie doesn't exist? Uh, and I think to what I'm getting at is that there are horror movies that can make you feel the same way. It can get that kind of emotional uh, draw from you. So I, I always think that I'm trying to convert somebody <laughs> uh, that might not be a horror fan and give them some similar stuff. Uh, and so I love what uh, Tarantino does. Uh, I, I may not think all of his movies are great. I may not think that uh, everything that he does uh, is gold. But I will say that that is a, a guy who is sincerely in love with films. And Absolutely. when I was reading the book, uh, I was amazed how many of his experiences were the same as my experiences. And it reminded me how small the world was when we were growing up, how analog everything was. And that's another thing that I'm bringing up in the new book, which is we were very homogenized. Why what you said resonates with me that you said it's a great time for horror. It is. But it's not just because it's popular. It's because it is multifaceted in a way that it has never been before. Because there are so many different places to find your horror. So uh, I think the pandemic helped a little bit with that. Uh, but I think that streaming is one of the hugest reasons. I think uh, just the openness of the internet, uh, the many multifaceted places that you can find movies. Uh, horror is a big, uh, it's the River Nile. And all these yes. different places are tributaries that are letting things run into it. Uh, so you have people watching Indonesian horror. You know, you had to be a particular kind of geek like me to drive into Philadelphia and get a video that was uh, in subtitles. You know, subtitled horror was not uh, anything people were going to deal with. And now people watch it all the time. It's the number one show on Netflix was uh, uh, Squid Game in Korean. Yep. Uh, there were several horror shows and horror movies uh, that uh, were up there, if not number one. And Shit, Train to Busan might be the best zombie movie I've ever seen in my yeah, life. Yeah, Train to Busan is fantastic. And the not the most important, really but definitely the, the, the oh, best fun. recently. It's a mix of disaster movie, social commentary, love story, and horror film. So it, re it works really well. It, it scratches a lot of itches. It's a unique thing. And I think that's another thing that's happening is we have hybrid vigor at this point. Movie, horror, like I, I got so pissed last night. I, I was watching a DVD, a Blu-ray that I bought of an old horror film called The Changeling. It came out in 1980. Ghost oh, yeah, George C. Scott. Yeah, George C. Scott, one of the great ones. And so I'm listening to Peter Medak, uh, who's the, or uh, Peter Himes, or no, no, it's Medak. Peter Medak is the uh, director and the producers on there. And I'm loving what they're saying. And then all of a sudden they go, of course, I've never considered this a horror film. Oh, no, no, it's not a horror film. And I went, fuck you. And I woke up my <laughs> wife uh, because I was like, this is one of the things that drives me crazy all the time. Drives me insane when people have to run in shame as if we're porn. And so uh, I, uh, I constantly hammer that nail down, <laughs> that, that uh, horror deserves uh, your respect and not your shame. Uh, but who knows where I was going. I won't that. watch I the Oscars until they start taking horror seriously. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, they have. I, I, I think the, the point now is moot. <clears throat> I think we've conquered it and we don't need it anymore. Uh, and that's another thing that I'm bringing up in the book now is that we don't need it anymore. Uh, there was a time when uh, The Exorcist and Jaws and all these movies were up for Oscars, uh, Silence of the Lambs, and they turned Silence of the Lambs into a thriller, psychological thriller. Before, it was a horror movie 
in February 14th when it opened. And then January, it suddenly is a thriller, a psychological thriller, and it kills the horror film for, for a decade in Hollywood, uh, where everything's just a psychological thriller and a psycho movie. But I think now, uh, Parasite won, uh, Joker was up for best uh, picture, uh, and we had Shape of Water. So at this point, they can call it whatever the fuck they want. We already, we trampled them. We've trampled uh, that sacred area where horror films used to never be allowed. And I think part of that is because the old guard is dying. And I think that the line between high culture, high art, and pop art has disappeared. Many of the many faceted reasons. Horror would be one of them. Uh, Star Wars is another, uh, and the superhero films is another. As those movies continue to uh, embrace our myths, uh, they they are, are uh, whittling away at the people who used to be able to sit there and say oh, that's greasy kid stuff. It's way too much money in them their hills at this point, and so they're uh, they're now not no longer going with that. But uh, the idea of why I think of the pandemic, horror has saved Hollywood's ass every fucking time. When there was a uh, a writer's strike, oh my goodness, horror movies suddenly became the, the vogue because they're just sitting on shelves. They wouldn't do anything with these movies. They wouldn't develop them. They wouldn't put them out. So that's the same thing that happened here in the pandemic. In the pandemic, we had two years where there was no movies being made. Everything got put on hold. And boom, where and, did they go? And it could have gotten rushed. If it was finished, it got rushed out. And yep. they, they give us like a, you know, a substandard uh, film. I do believe, I'll go to my grave thinking that Godzilla versus Kong could have been so much better had oh, they not yeah. rushed it out. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's so many versions of that, but they're also they've been rushing fucking movies out. Uh, they uh, Carpenter talks about it all the time. Why he doesn't direct anymore? He goes, they take more time off of the front, they take more time off of the back, and they make you do it all in thirty days. He goes, who who needs that? I'm an old man. You know, we used to have time to make mistakes and then re yeah. revamp those mistakes. Because now it's just that it's got to be processed in a certain way. I get that. Uh, the the uh, the uh, business is always changing. Who's in charge changes. Uh, are they movie lovers or are they money lovers? It changes yeah. all the time. But uh, I think that what happened was horror came to the rescue because all these movies are sitting on shelves. There's all this foreign stuff that they weren't doing anything with. And boom, uh, the uh, streaming services bought those up fast. And next thing you know, these movies that were just sitting in a corner. Uh, and uh, they did that when the streaming services first started. I have friends who are independent filmmakers whose movies were on Amazon when on Amazon had no product. So very low budget horror films were playing indie films. And the guys who were making films finally for once were able to pay their rent. They were getting good money. And then Amazon makes Amazon Studios and they get an Oscar nomination and boom. They shut everybody else out. They have enough product. They can make their own stuff. They start going towards prestige and horror is kicked out. But the only reason that they're around is because horror was there. And if you ever look at any of the, uh, uh, the, the statistics, no horror movie makes Star Wars money. Very few. Some have, but no, uh, it's very rare. But there are a hundred horror movies a year and they make a billion dollars. They are that such as the old guard is dying. And I think that the line between high culture, high art, and pop art has disappeared. Many of the many faceted reasons. Horror would be one of them. Uh, Star Wars is another, uh, and the superhero films is another. As those movies continue to uh, embrace our myths, 
they they are, are uh, whittling away at the people who used to be able to sit there and say oh, that's greasy kid stuff. It's way too much money in them their hills at this point, and so they're uh, they're now not no longer going with that. But uh, the idea of why I think the pandemic horror has saved Hollywood's ass every fucking time. When there was a uh, a writer's strike, oh my goodness, horror movies suddenly became the, the vogue because they're just sitting on shelves. They wouldn't do anything with these movies. They wouldn't develop them. They wouldn't put them out. So that's the same thing that happened here in the pandemic. In the pandemic, we had two years where there was no movies being made. Everything got put on hold and boom, where and, did they go? And it could have gotten rushed. If it was finished, it got rushed out and yep. they, they give us like a, you know, a substandard uh, film. I do believe I'll go to my grave thinking that Godzilla versus Kong could have been so much better. Oh, they not yeah. rushed it out. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's so many versions of that, but they're also, they've been rushing fucking movies out. Uh, they, uh, Carpenter talks about it all the time, why he doesn't direct anymore. He goes, they take more time off of the front and take more time off of the back and they make you do it all in 30 days. He goes, who, who needs that? I'm an old man. You know, we used to have time to make mistakes and then re yeah. revamp those mistakes because now it's just that it's got to be processed in a certain way. I get that. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, business is always changing. Who's in charge changes. Uh, are they movie lovers or are they money lovers? It changes yeah. all the time. But uh, I think that what happened was horror came to the rescue because all these movies are sitting on shelves. There's all this foreign stuff that they weren't doing anything with. And boom, uh, the uh, streaming services bought those up fast. And next thing you know, these movies that were just sitting in a corner. Uh, and uh, they did that when the streaming services first started. I have friends who are independent filmmakers whose movies were on Amazon when Amazon had no product. So very low budget horror films were playing indie films and the guys who were making films finally for once were able to pay their rent. They were getting good money. And then Amazon makes Amazon studios and they get an Oscar nomination and boom, they shut everybody else out. They have enough product. They can make their own stuff. They start going towards prestige and horror is kicked out. But the only reason that they're around is because horror was there. And if you ever look at any of the, uh, uh, the, the statistics, no horror movie makes Star Wars money. Very few. Some have, but no, uh, it's very rare. But there are a hundred horror movies a year. And they make a billion dollars. They are such a big business. And that's why it always cracks me up when they sit there and they talk about, well, no, these movies all, almost always make money until you overspend for somebody who shouldn't be in the movie in the first place. You know, some superstar that makes no sense. Well, you know, Star Wars might have the, the Joe Frazier left hook with the one shot knockout. But horror has the Ollie punches and bunches. There we go. And, Where we sting like a butterfly or float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. I got the little you know, rope a dope. I would say sting that like horror a butterfly is my next film, by the way. There you go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, but you you said it though. Uh, Carpenter mentioned uh, you know cutting time off the front, cutting time off the back, and you've you know he doesn't have time for that. And just think about what Ty West did. You know he he had to film. He didn't probably didn't have to do it, but he did film X and Pearl. Yeah. At the same time, just right there on on set, back to back, probably use the same budget. Yeah, you know, and he made it work. But it, like that shouldn't be the norm. Oh, it should not be the norm, and it's huge balls. I mean, it was done once before that I can think of. Wayne Wang, was it Wayne Wang? Uh, I think it was who made the movie Smoke with uh, Harvey Keitel and 
uh, I'm trying to think who else is in it, but it was uh, basically a small story about one block in, uh, in Brooklyn and this smoke shop that was there. And it was a really sweet independent film that everybody loved. It was a shock. It was, I think, 1995. And they, they blew in the face at the same time. They were having so much fun making that movie that they made a second film that got released afterwards, which was nowhere near as good. And it was obvious that they just kind of tried to improvise more stories for this smoke shop. But the idea of smoke was that you uh, that stories are ephemeral, like smoke in the air. What's the weight of smoke was the question that they asked in the very beginning. And so it's all about how we are just connected by stories, but stories are like a good meal. They disappear after a certain degree, but whoever enjoyed it, they're the ones that can savor it. You can never retell that moment. And so it was a great idea. And they just decided to make this second movie. I think they had Madonna, whoever was on the fucking street at the time, came over and started working on it. Uh, so it's been done before, but it's super rare. And it's always going to be done in a low budget because there's, there's no way you can do too big. But well, uh, I, I stand corrected. We're missing the big one, which is Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings trilogy, were, they were all shot at the same time. And that was a package deal agreement. And it was the smartest thing that I've ever heard a director do, which is come with a three and a half hour movie that is all three books and give it to New Line. And you know it's not going to work. And But make it good enough that they go, shit, this isn't going to work, man. You know what? Go make three movies. We'll find the money somehow. You know, we'll, we'll double what you got, but you got to be really tight. What a smart move. That's that's right up there with uh, uh, Orson Welles doing Touch of Evil, where he was pretty much unreliable as a director. He got drunk and went off bullfighting with Magnificent Ambersons and all this shit. So, you know, he was they had to put up a lot of money in insurance for him to make Touch of Evil. He knew that the uh, studios were going to be on his ass. So a week before they were going to shoot, he begged. Charlton Heston and uh, the other actors to come together and have a set and rehearse the movie, the uh, big scene where uh, Charlton Heston's character finds the gun or the dynamite, the dynamite in the in this one room. It's a, a big, uh, 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 for people who haven't seen the movie, it's all about police corruption. One of the first movies to really talk about police corruption. And you have this uh, much beloved uh, uh detective who's also a racist uh basically framing somebody so that he can get away with uh having a perfect record and he gets caught because uh charlton hessen just happens to be in the room at the time that something changes well it's he set it up uh that it was going to be two shooting days to do that entire thing and so he begs everybody to learn all the camera angles he comes and breaks the cameraman we're going to figure out how we're going to block this whole thing because the first day he comes in, and of course, there's all the suits. And he goes, all right, let's do this thing. And he gets two days in, done in like half of a day. And he says, oh, you know, we've just taken care of two days. And like, okay, fine, we'll leave you alone. They're like, wow, he knows what he's doing. So he planned it to be at the, the maximum uh, of, of his uh, abilities. And, of course, he had uh, uh, people who were behind him who would go and come in on their off days to, to figure out what was going on. But, you know, there are these really smart things that some people do. Um, but, yeah, it shouldn't be the norm uh, that you need to make two movies. I think it's ballsy as hell that Ty West did that, though. Uh, very, and very. Because you have no idea if that's going to work. I mean, X is a... You Huge have gamble. 
Yeah, it's a huge gamble because there hadn't been a movie quite like X in a while. And I think that's kind of why it did work because it delivered on the transgressiveness, which I will say the original Terrifier did. And this is going to be controversial, but I did not think that the second Terrifier did. I thought the second Terrifier played it real safe. And uh, it, I, yeah, it was a, it was a very safe film. They had the one bedroom scene that probably was the you know, the, the shocker of the film. And then the yeah. rest of it just played it very, you know, I mean, just story. nickel and dime you to death. And it, yeah. it was a fine film, fine film, yeah. completely fine. Yeah. But yeah, nothing out of the box. No. And, and so I, I to give... your point, to, to your point, Ty West uh, with, with X, he had no idea if it was going to work. Yeah. He didn't know that Pearl was going to even be a payoff. Uh, and here we are at the end of Pearl. We've got this uh, teaser, this post-credit teaser for Maxine using my obsession, you know, from the eighties. So we know that we're going to get us a, an eighties flick, right? Uh, probably another porn star flick, which is going to be great because Mia Goth absolutely killed it. She can do anything she oh, wants to do. Great. I even came and, you know, came home and I said, man, just give me Mia Goth as Annie Wilkes in the, the misery remake. Yeah. That'd and, be awesome. And just let her go. Just let yeah. her fucking go. I, I like, but you know, the idea. days of uh, Roger Corman making a film in three days is, is probably over with, you know, with, with yeah. a few exceptions. I, I think they're happening out there. And I think that's going to is an interesting place to take the conversation because I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen in the, the horror movie narrative uh, or what's going to happen in cinema in general. There is no uh, secret that video games are kicking a living shit out of cinema. That people are not going back to the movies. People are uh, going to certain things that are packaged. Uh, but other than that, they're really not taking huge chances on indie stuff. Uh, there is some. Pearl and X are exceptions to the rule. But there's a lot of things that just kind of die on the vine. Uh, but I, I think that after two decades of, or two decades, when it was two generations at least, of people who have grown up playing horror video games where you don't have to be in the same room with somebody and still you're playing the same narrative and now you're in control of the narrative there is a spine of a story but you are making the story go where it needs to go you're being directed for sure but you can change what is happening and the pacing and the drama all the time and that is very compelling and when you only have two hours, I think what you see now is more people are excited by eight, eight episode miniseries than they are films. Sure. And I think people want to have that time to really get lost and immersed in a story, kind of like a video game. And video games have been trying to look like cinema, and now cinema is trying to look like video games. 1917 is a single person, uh, a shooter game. You know, uh, it's an RPG. So you're you're uh, basically only seeing things from that one soldier's eyes the entire time. It's like the first Resident Evil. I was watching the movie. I'm going, Jesus Christ, this is this is a video game. This is amazing, and it works. And I think. I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on this because I think that we need to come up with a way to allow the audience to have more agency in the narrative. And I don't know how that's going to work. And if it's going to be that uh, video games are going to be the entertainment to be to beat uh, in, in the future and how horror is always going to, you know, porn or horror. That's the only problem is that sometimes we are hand in glove. 
porn and horror uh, do change technology all the time. Uh, and they, they exploit that and they are also able to do it cheap. So I think that their uh, horror is going to come up with some way and part might be these things where movies are being made on top of each other, a package deal of two horror films for the price of one or could be however it might be. I don't know. Yeah. But enjoy it, it, Mia Goth while we got her because. Oh, when, yeah. When she's, we, we she's have gone, to. she's gone. Yeah. Once she's gone, she's gone. And damn it, she will live on in Pearl. And I can tell you that that's that film is probably my pick of the year. And I don't I don't say that lightly. Um, I, I usually don't harp on the, uh, the the mainstream stuff as much. Got some very close friends who, uh, you know, in the indie scene who are, you know, kind of tied in with the trauma guys. Nice. And uh, I love yeah, so they're, they're, they're doing great things. Um, and, you know, there's uh, the Curse of the Were Deer coming up, uh, Bring on the Damned. Um, my guy Lucky Saruti's doing short films. I, I've got some guys coming on very soon who are going to be, you know, releasing films in the, the upcoming months. They've got premieres going on. They're just doing great things. I'm really proud of them. But if we, you know, you brought up the fact that people kind of use horror as the, uh, like, just, you know, give them the stink face, right? Well, I recently had the director of, I'm not sure if you knew this, but Bring It On, the, the cheerleading movies. The horror one, yeah. The horror one. I had the director, Karen Lamb, a uh, Canadian gal had her on and you know she said that you know her advisors were like look you can do this but you know you gotta you gotta try to work your way out of horror like you don't want to like you don't want to get stuck doing horror and she's like stuck i thrive here this is yeah. my thing and i asked her about that because her twitter uh bio said it didn't just specify that she's a director or screenwriter or producer it specifies that she is a horror director, screenwriter, producer. And yeah. I said, did, was that strategic? She goes, yeah, yeah, I'm a horror director first. And then I'm a secondary director later, because if, if I have a, if I have to pick between the two, I'm going to pick horror and I don't feel stuck there. I, I think this is where um, where I want my name to be etched in stone is through horror. But, you know, on the video game front, it, it's interesting you brought that up. Because I recently purchased uh, a video game called The Quarry, okay? And The Quarry is, um, it's a video game where you're basically choosing your own adventure, okay? You're mm -hmm. not really doing a lot of controlling of the character in the classic ways, right? You don't, there are a lot of cinematics in this, okay? You, you make choices with a button to say, right. what's the dialogue or what's the decision? I paid $60 for this film, Okay. Uh -huh. And man, was I disappointed. Oh dear. I, I felt robbed of the money that I voluntarily gave up because there had been a prior video game called until dawn who did this masterfully. Oh yeah. Yeah. Until that. dawn was great, but the quarry, if, if the quarry is any indication of where this genre is going, I don't like it. I don't mm -hmm. like it at all. But it has been more hit than miss with some of the there's a company called Telltale and they uh, they did a Walking Dead graphic novel type video game, uh, not based on the show, but based on the graphic novels. And I thought it was fantastic, uh, you know, emotional games. 
And I think with the exception of the quarry, we have a very good indication that good things can be done in the video game world with horror. I, I uh, just so. hell just the other day uh as i was i was talking or i was playing a uh i really shouldn't tell myself here but i'm going to um you know i was doing a little bit of gaming i'm not ashamed very much uh on <laughs> friday the 13th the game on playstation and there's such a mix of people that like it, it includes like very young kids okay and this is a one question i wanted to get into with you mm-hmm. i was online the other night and this one kid, you just know that high pitch. He's there with his pops. He's, you know, he's having dinner. Uh, I can hear his dad telling him in Spanish, uh, you know, to eat his dinner while he plays, not to, not to just play and let his food get cold, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm telling him in Spanish, "Hey, you better listen to your dad, because, you know, when it's my turn to be Jason, I'm coming after you, and I'm gonna eat your lunch." You know, <laughs> trash talk the kid a little bit. He was having fun with his dad. Laughed. It was great. But I asked him how old he was, and he said, oh, he's 11, 11 years mm-hmm. old. And, like, of course, as I'm online, I'm going to take care of this kid, right? Make sure nobody's being mean to him or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're going to drop horror on the kids, we got to take the extra steps to take care of them, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't become maybe desensitized or, you know, influenced by the violence. Make sure that they know that it's a fun thing. Where mm-hmm. do you stand on that with, you know, I guess, have do you have a gateway film <laughs> instead of a gateway drug? Do you have a gateway <sighs> film that you like to suggest to like maybe other parents or something? Oh, well, I mean, there's, Gremlins there's, is my go to. Yeah, Gremlins is a really good one, uh, especially because so many people don't even think that that's a horror movie. And I remember when oh, I saw it in the theater, uh, I, you know, it's so funny. It seems like it's innocent now. But when that first came out, there were a lot of upset people. Because, sure and, were. and the movie was even worse on script. I mean, they had like Santa's head. They were kicking Santa's head like a, a soccer ball in, in, the, in, the, in the script. So uh, it's, it's funny to think of it in those terms. Uh, but I guess for me, a gateway uh, would be something like, uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm trying not to think of anything too old, but you did say Gremlins. So, uh, yeah, Lady Gremlins in, and Beetlejuice are kind of two of my yeah, favorites. Ladies, Lady in White is is a really good uh horror yeah. movie a ghost story uh i would yeah. say that even though it's r-rated uh the the changeling is another good uh, ghost stories normally let's go even further sense. back sa nosferatu oh yeah Perfect i don't know if you can a get kid. a kid i don't know if you can get a kid to watch it although i have I say, and it's oh, beautiful good. yeah good, good, good. He, he they well both of them they were they were four and three they were you know my kids um so you know if they got up i just spank them and you know sit them back down but um <laughs> but i sit them there and the fact that there's no dialogue right is even better for them you know they don't have to understand what's going on they just see the you know the shadow creeping up the steps they see the the door slowly open if there's nothing else the kids are going to understand it's a slowly opening door to reveal like what's behind it and then a man standing there like this it come on that it's oh. Fantastic, and yeah. I think it's the perfect gateway film for that. That's fantastic, for actually. And you're absolutely right because uh, I, I say this often that horror is pure cinema, uh, and it, as pure cinema it does not necessarily have to make logical sense, it has to make emotional sense. Uh, art is that way anyway. Uh, you, when you're looking at a painting, they don't go, Can you can I see your degree so you can look at the painting? No, they ask you, How does it make you feel? Uh, that's what they want to know what does this Mm. make you feel what does the song make you feel you can analyze it later 
and horror is like music in that way it's like art in that way that it just doesn't need to be the intellectual thing it's the feeling and so because of that uh you don't have to know the culture even to understand that this is a horror movie which is why uh a lot of people who are immigrants when they first came to the country uh, they watched action films which is why uh clint eastwood and uh uh, what's his name? Schwarzenegger was so big uh, because you don't good and bad are pretty obvious in those movies and horror movies. You don't action movies and horror movies were the ones that people watch because you can learn the culture from those movies and the visuals are speaking for you. You don't have to have dialogue and especially something like Nosferatu because silent films is one thing but German expressionism is an entirely other thing which means that everything is exaggerated so you do have fingers going up against a wall and that's completely natural and normal I mean they're, they're kissing cousins horror and German expressions which is why the first rate German expressionism films are all horror films and I think that uh, you're, you're completely dead on with that, that if, if you can get the kind of visual images, which is why Coppola's first 15 minutes of Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula is fantastic, because it may as well be a silent film. It has all of this amazing visual lusciousness happening that you're into the story. Once they start talking, it falls apart. But uh, the, the beginning of that movie is fucking awesome. And I would say that uh, silent films are definitely that. That's one of the reasons that I really liked uh, the original um, Paranormal Activity, because you could turn the volume off on that thing. You get what's going on. And it's like a silent film, and it's like an experimental film. We're doing all the work. Our eyes never stop moving around that box. It just has that open screen, the camera's still, people are sleeping there. And we are the ones making ourselves nervous. Uh, that that's, goes all the way back to early editing techniques. So it's as good as a silent film in that way. So I'm glad that you, you do that. Now, you asked an interesting question, though. I mean, there's a gateway thing. But you asked about, uh, you know, what, what do I think about the violence, essentially? Interesting. I'll go back to Tarantino again. Tarantino's mom used to take him when he was eight to see all these movies. So he saw the movies like mash and he saw the godfather and all this stuff as as a young kid and uh, and he saw exploitation films and murder films all this crazy stuff and his mom you know i forget what one he would she wouldn't take him to see texas chainsaw because she was not interested in seeing texas chainsaw it wasn't that she uh, the only one that she said that she wouldn't let him see because she didn't know how graphic it was going to be was the exorcist and they saw that later but prior, outside of that, he saw a lot of really heavy-duty horror films and uh, exploitation films and violent films and black exploitation films. Uh, most of his uh, mother's boyfriends were black, so he got into the, that culture very early. They all took him to see the movies. And he asked, you know, uh, or somebody asked, you know, why do you let him see all these things? He goes, I'm trying to shield him from the news. The news is the thing that's going to actually fuck up. Mm. And so that's, that's, the tr that's the truth. You know, we can sit there and we can try and shield the kids. A horror movie can never hurt you. You are safe from whatever it is. The worst that can happen is you have some nightmares. You know, the idea of desensitization, that's not just a movie happening. You know, that is something else outside that is saying that you can also go here. You know, so uh, I... I... I 
do believe that we're at a time where there's so much saturation uh and now that politics is kind of like world wrestling federation and all of this wonderful stuff where we can just put shit down all the time we can be negative all the time uh it's coming from all aspects uh the easy punching bag is a thing that tells the fucking truth on us which is the horror movie horror movie tells you when we are out of control you know when we were having uh, the slasher films in the 80s slasher films isn't it amazing the slasher films come out right after we've gone through the feminist movement the first round of the feminist movement in the 70s and we come into the 80s and we're like god damn it we're, we're gonna men are men and women are women again and you have this whole thing as soon as women start to complain about the violence that are in there we start going well men get killed in them too yeah but men get killed in like i get a stab and they fall over the woman's going oh no 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 and <laughs> for an hour while a guy has a knife dangling between his legs yeah there's no difference between the two but what I'm getting at there is that when the protests started around that, we doubled down. Slashers doubled down. That's a highly political move. You know, that is really talking to the times. You know, and so ignore the pro, uh, ignore the, the complaints of others. We're just going to go and we're going to have fucking fun on it. Now, I, I watched all the slasher films, so I'm not sitting there saying, but it is where they are telling on us. So I think what's interesting is when we had torture porn, right? So everybody right. hated torture porn. Oh my goodness, every politician in the world is getting out and telling you about how torture porn is the most disgusting thing. And they're just coming up with this title. They're telling you how the world, the decline of Western civilization is happening because of these fucking movies. They forget to tell you that a year before the original Saw and a year, two years before the original Hostel, we had the Abu Ghraib incident, which was where we had people in Guantanamo Bay getting tortured by the military and mocked. You know, told to stand in a human pyramid, pyramid naked with broomsticks hanging out of their asses while a guy's going like this, going, yay. And when that happens and it gets out because these morons took pictures of it on their phones and let people find them, uh, they immediately, uh, you know, it's an outrage worldwide, right? And what do we do? We have Congress, instead of saying, well, we you know we don't get behind any of this this is a nightmare instead they sit there and go well maybe we should talk about what is torture and what isn't torture what's waterboarding it's just you kind of bubbling glugging water i mean people do that for for jollies and bdsm you know all this shit. instead of just saying we believe in the geneva convention because we don't want any of our people to ever have to go through torture like this and we should not have had that done and that maybe it's just a couple bad eggs well, we already knew that they had written that into the rules. The Pentagon Papers pretty much tell you that they were going right. to do that. Uh, but instead of doing any of that dog and pony show even of saying, you know, we're against this, at least let the United States know, let the people know that we're not for torture and let the world know, we instead have a hearing about it. And we want to find out, is it really torture? So we obsess the entire world about torture. Is it any surprise that a year later we have entertainment where guys are tied to chairs, getting their legs and arms sewn off? Yeah, it is telling on us. It is always telling on our anxieties. And it always has. Yeah, and it always has. So, you know, it's it's interesting how we, we love to attack the arts, right? The thing that uh, allegedly is the most innocent thing that you can take or leave at any given time and you don't give it many money and all this shit. Uh, that's the thing that's really turning kids, you know, turning kids into nightmares, not 
the idea that the adults are playing this really crazy game. Yeah. So I think that, you know, um, we can we can shelter the kids. Sure. If you want. But I don't think you're doing them any favors. And I, I don't think there's a way to shelter. First off, kids are curious. I wasn't supposed to yeah, watch the movies that, that I was supposed to watch. That and the fact that horror makes you happy and healthy, does it not? Tell me yeah, about absolutely. Screaming for Pleasure, your book, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. Yes. So uh, that is the name of my book. And uh, it's basically a deep dive into all things that are creeping crawly. And I talk about how uh, horror does not only give you a thrill, but it also can change things into where uh, you can feel a little bit better. And it's not that it's, in other words, I say that it's healing. That's not going to cure your lumbago or something like that. But I'm talking right. more about the psychological side of things, the, the emotional side. And I think that uh, what art normally does can you explain why you like sports? Maybe you can talk about camaraderie and teams and things like that, but we're really, it's a strange ethereal thing. Why do we go and cheer? Why do we go in winter and do this thing? Why do we wanna see people do things that we normally wouldn't do? Uh, why do we like music? Why do we go to metal and punk concerts and sweat like crazy? You know, why do we go to comedies? All these things. There's not a really good logical reason. But emotionally, it is doing something for us. It is releasing something that we are not able to articulate. Uh, I talk about that a lot where it's like you could go into a psychiatrist's office and goes, well, what's wrong with you? And I'd be like, Bleh, that's what's wrong with me. I have no clue. I can't tell you. It's just being alive. It's this constant low-level tension that's happening all the time. And so horror allows us a safe haven for looking at this stuff you know i can look at the uh, I, I i say that i would not want to watch a movie about the insurrection uh the january 6th insurrection but i'm more than happy to watch vampires and werewolves take over congress <laughs> i can i can deal with that so it's talking about it but it's not talking about it right it, it gives us a safe distance the monsters are metaphors they can stand in for whatever the real life boogeyman is that we have no control over so much of what we're afraid of really is that we have no control. I have no control over the price of meat. I have no control over what's happening in the world. I can, the best I can do is vote. I can take care of my own little thing, but it feels like the world's always falling apart. Horror allows me to address that anxiety for 90 minutes. I get to have the monster be whatever it needs to be. And so for me, when I was a kid, uh, I had a, a rough childhood. Many of the people who are into horror uh, had a bad first act and they're having a fantastic second and third act because they found something about themselves that was fun. Many of us went into uh, the world of horror. We could address and relate to the Frankenstein monster. You know, dad doesn't like me and I'm thrown out of the house and everybody else thinks I'm too weird to hang out with. You know, that's a lot of people's lives. So we understand uh, the, the fragility of uh, the uh, the way that the, the monster is taken care of uh, in, in movies like that. But also, it just allows us to have that metaphor work for us, whether we know it's a metaphor or not. When I was a kid at eight, I saw a very esoteric film that uh, has become my first kiss with horror, the movie I wasn't supposed to watch, but I saw it. That changed my life. And I wish it could be something that when I said it, everybody goes, yeah, but instead it's this esoteric art film. And uh, it's Don't Look Now. Uh, and uh, the beginning of that movie has the drowning of a child. But it's done very surreally. Uh, it's done with uh, uh, many weird artistic flash cuts. 
uh, it's done out of sequence and it's done for maximum suspense and there's slow motion, all this stuff. So it's a child that dies, but it takes five minutes for it to happen. And the parents are inside their house and the kid drowns in the pond in the backyard, right? They're too busy fucking around. And it's all about premonitions and all this stuff, but it completely freaked me out as a kid. I had nightmares for three days. Now I get it now why I needed to watch that movie again and why I swore myself to secrecy and never tell my dad that I saw it. Uh, it was more uh, uh, what it ended up being that I know now knows my parents were going through a divorce. They were pretending that they weren't, but there was so much anger in the house and I was abandoned pretty much. They were hot on each other. I was just a hockey puck to knock back and forth, right? I was, I was sure. a tool to be used. And that's one of the things that happens when you're a kid, your world totally helpless, your world's tearing apart and you have no control over it all. You, you could die. Your whole destiny's gone. So I'm watching this movie and it's not that the kid dies. It's that parents might not save you. Parents might forget that you're even there and you'll die. And so that was something that I was afraid of. And I had no idea. I could not articulate that. I couldn't tell my uncles that. I couldn't tell my friends that. I sat in days silence, barely get it, being able to get through a day at school without falling asleep because tension, pressure, stress, fear, all that stuff. And I watched horror movies and I felt a little bit better because in a horror movie, I can turn it off at any time. I can hit pause. I can get up. I can leave. I am in control. But if I make it through, that somehow feels like I've gotten somewhere. So there's many different ways to have that exorcism. You can do it with sports. You can do it with music. You can do it with art. This is just as valid. And I think actually a little bit better because it goes to this spot that most people don't even want to look at. We don't want to look at that shadow self, which is the Jungian thing that he talks about where you have the persona, which is me trying to be nice and clever here. I want everybody to like me. But then there's the shadow self. The shadow self is the thing that wants to kick over the chessboard at any given moment. The one that says, it's mine. I want it. That little beast that's inside of all of us is there. And it's normal and it's natural. And as Jung says, you have to kind of give it a little bit of space. You have to acknowledge that it's there. Admit that it's there, acknowledge it, accept it. Don't become your shadow, but understand that it's there. And I think horror allows us a safe handshake with our shadow self. It allows us to see something disturbing. It allows us to be surprised in a way. And comedy and horror are kind of the same thing on different sides of the coin. They both want to surprise. Comedies, you watch somebody do something that you could never get away with. It's like a wish fulfillment. But horror allows you to watch somebody go through something you'd never want to go through and survive it and so there is this kind of catharsis over that kind of thing uh, i don't just say it's a roller coaster ride i don't just say it's a catharsis because it's like what's a catharsis for you need to know what it's supposed to be there for yeah uh, but I, I i think that it's very very strong once you you get an idea of like man i'm i'm just pissed off i need i i can break something or i can watch a horror movie and, and some of us are constantly in them because we we see not only that you know it makes me feel a little bit better i have a a, a crowd of people now i have I'm, I'm better about this little shadow self that's inside of me i also have a sense of humor i don't take myself too seriously you cannot watch these things and take it too seriously if you're going to sit there and get into a fist fight over giant ants and godzilla you're an asshole uh, and, and yet at the same point you also find your 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 tribe you find 
a group of people that you can hang out with. So, you know, if you're able to handle, you know, some of the stress in your life and have a stress release, uh, you're able to have a sense of play in your life and have a sense of humor about it. And you have a group of friends that you can trade things with and you get to go into the regular life normal. That sounds like a pretty happy and healthy life to me. So that's really where it comes from. And this is the subject of uh, some some live lectures you have coming up, is it not? Starting mid-January? Yes, yes. I have a couple. Thank you for bringing that up. I have... Uh, sure. You uh, said monsters are metaphors and it rung a bell. Yes, monsters are metaphors, which is uh, the name of the lecture that I give. Uh, basically, several of the things that we talked about here that you brought up and that I brought up are some of the movies that I discuss. So I talk about how through the generations, uh, horror has always been... Uh, whether we like it or not, whether we want to look at it or not, whether we uh, the movie succeeds or fails, horror movies are always commenting on where we are and what is happening in our lives. And so uh, I talk a lot about the allegories and metaphors, and I look at how uh, through from the silent films all the way up, how horror movies uh, were always talking about what was going on. It is not a new phenomenon for films to feel political. You're just on the shit end of that stick now if you're not having fun <laughs> with it you know it's just oh, oh looks like the world has passed you by you better hurry on up and find out what's going on this is what your parents were mad about remember when your parents were talking about slasher films guess what right now you it's know? your turn yeah now it's your turn uh and it's always been like that uh, horror has always been quote unquote woke uh, it's always talking about the, 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 the problems that are out there in the world. If you look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is one I always love to bring up, because you can see the three official Invasion of the Body Snatcher movies, every one of those, same storyline, different metaphor for whatever's happening in the world at the time. But even the first one, the first one can be read multiple ways. But the two most important ways that it usually gets talked about is it's either an anti-communism film or is an anti-authoritarian McCarthyism film, opposite sides. And both sides were right because both sides, there was a legitimate concern about that. So that was what we had anxiety about. And I think what's great about that movie is that it doesn't pick a side. But boy, is it incendiary if you're on the other side talking to somebody about it. Yet, it's a movie that because it's in the past, we're, we're cool with that. You know, it's something that we've gone through and everything like that. And I don't know if anybody really got super angry over Invasion of the Body Snatchers because, uh, like I said, the giant pod people from outer space. I always laugh because some uh, I'll have somebody say, you know, you think movies are about uh, all movies are about something. Can a movie are you like Freud? Can a banana just be a banana? I'm like, yeah, a banana can be just a banana. You know why? Because bananas fucking exist. Giant pod people from outer space don't. So I'm <laughs> they assuming, if to they your knowledge, up, yeah, to my knowledge, right? But but they're uh, perhaps they're actually a metaphor, motherfucker. Uh, so why why are they there? You 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 worried about giant outer space pod people? Is that your big thing? Yeah. Uh, so it's always standing in for something. Even when you said that a giant ate my homework, <laughs> he was a metaphor for I fucked up and didn't do my homework. S.A. Bradley, you are a fantastic ambassador for the genre. I truly do appreciate your time today. Before we slide into the gag reel, though, you want to <laughs> tell everybody where they can find you uh, in your work uh, or like you on your socials? 
Sure. Uh, if you look up Hellbent for Horror on any of the socials, uh, I mean, in the big ones, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you'll find me. Hellbent for Horror, uh, at Hellbent for Horror on Instagram and on uh, Twitter. Uh, and it's Hellbent for Horror on Facebook if you want to go down that fashion path. Uh, there's also my website, hellbentforhorror.com. Uh, and if you want to find out about the books uh, that is there, any of the events that are happening, that's the, the, the main place you're going to be able to find stuff on there. Of course, it's all on the socials as well. It all kind of directs together. Uh, and uh, I'm at different conventions now. It's the end of the year. So I've just had my last of the conventions, but they'll be starting up probably again uh, in April or so. And in that time, I usually do around 10 conventions where I do panels and discussions and uh, I might be coming to your area. You never know. <laughs> well, I'll be looking out for Nashville, Tennessee. So listeners, check the episode description for all those links to find S.A. Bradley if you haven't already. My man, I thank you for your time. Enjoy the Christmas evil festivities. Best of skill on your uh, your live lectures. And uh, guys, explore hellbentforhorror.com. For the latest episodes of the popular horror podcast, Hellbent for Horror, read reviews and get copies of, of S.A. Bradley's book, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. And that's going to do it for this episode of Slasher Sports Cinema. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends, support indie film, support horror literature. But as always, go forth and may you drink the blood of your enemies from the skulls of their children.